Digital 410 proudly presents the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast with your hosts, Don Abernathy, Jeff Copsetta, and Henry Sledge. Welcome, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast, your favorite World War II-based podcast. And you know you're doing something right when members of the staff are getting text messages from waiting listeners and viewers saying, yo, uh, it's like almost 932. Where are you guys at? So here we are. We're happy to have people. We'd love to know that people are waiting for us. What's the old saving? Leave them wanting more. But before you can leave them wanting more, you got to present something to them to begin with. And so I present to you guys, Mr. Jeff Copsetta and Henry Sledge. Gentlemen, how are we doing tonight? Pumped to be here. Super excited. As always. As always. As always. Mondays always suck until we get off work. And then we're here. And we're happy to be here. And we uh, hopefully shine a Klieg light on everybody's Monday to make everything happier and better. You know, Jeff was gone last week and he felt kind of left out. So we're going to pretend like we didn't do anything. Um, we're going to give away an end block right now for uh, one of the Patreon members. And Jeff is uh, here to enjoy it. We're going to pull a name out here. And uh, the winner of the end block is Mr. Brian Larkin. So, Brian, we're going to reach out to you <laughs> on Patreon. Thank you so much for supporting the show. The autograph end block will be sent out this week, along with the coffee. Our winner of the coffee has actually gotten back with us. I'm just waiting for a second reply to let me know. But yes, Mr. Alexander Richard Marshalls is getting his coffee mug, his end block, his pack of Warbird coffee, and some stickers and the like. So if you guys want to be entered into those contests automatically, all you have to do is head over to patreon.com or wtspworldwar2.com. Sign up for Patreon. It's a dollar a month. Goes a long way to support what we do here at the uh, network. And uh, thank you guys so much. Henry, you got like an earthquake going on there, fella? <laughs> like, no, man, I'm writing on the table. I'm ah. taking notes on what we got to do for Memorial Day. So ah, sorry. No, it's no worries. jostling the table. I was going to say, I've, I've never seen that issue before. Oh, looks like our guest is going to be popping on here shortly. He just sent me a text. So tell you what, Jeff, while I'm doing that in the background, why don't you go ahead and uh, let's get mail call out of the way. And then by, t- by the time you get through that second letter, we should have our guest on. Yeah, and I'll go ahead and congratulate uh, Mr. Brian Larkin. I know he uh, is a big-time listener in the show because he's a close cousin of mine. And so, sorry, Brian, you probably don't really care about my autograph. But conveniently, you can flip that end block around and show off Mr. Henry Sledge's end block. All right, so to mail call, yeah, like Don said, we've got – Two folks that have written in. Uh, The first one starts off like this. Good morning, all. I'm working my way through all of the previous podcasts, and you fellas are surely going to cost me some money with all the books you three are recommending. I have a book to suggest that I have read and recommend. The title is, quote, And I Was There, Pearl Harbor and Midway, Breaking the Secrets by Admiral Edwin Layton. Uh, It is about 600 pages long, and it's a good read about the role of the Codebreakers in World War II. Published in 1985, you might think it would be a dry read, but Admiral Layton captures and keeps your attention throughout the book. Admiral Layton was the fleet intelligence officer from the beginning at Pearl Harbor and continued to be at Nimitz's side until the end of the war. I highly recommend this book as there is little written on how the Navy broke the Japanese military code. Keep up the outstanding podcast, and I cannot wait until the next one. Sincerely, Donna Eikhoff. Thank you, Donna. Great topic on that book as well. Um Our second mail call goes like this. Hi, guys. Just finished your podcast with Jared Frederick about his Iwo Jima visit. Iwo Jima is a small island, but it was a large battlefield. 
You can walk from Kitano Point to Mount Suribachi in one morning. It took three Marine divisions, 36 days, to cover the same ground. My father was a carrier pilot on the USS Langley, CVL-27, in 1944. As a member of Langley's Air Group 32, he flew on the first strike against the island. His plane was badly damaged, and a passenger was killed a few feet behind him. I researched that mission and published an article in the September 2012 issue of World War II History magazine. I've also become very interested in what the island looked like before the bombing campaign turned the surface into a moonscape. I found many pre-battle aerial recon photos of the island, many from the bowels of the National Archives. I've posted many of them in albums 32 through 38 here. He sent us a nice uh, link to go to that. Uh, other World War II-related albums preceded. You may find interesting things there. I visited Iwo in 2014, and it was a day I shall never forget. Chris Marks from Amana, Iowa. Thank you, Chris and Donna, for writing in. Um, interesting recommendation, Henry, on uh, Admiral Layton. You know, uh, I think she's got a point there. There's not a whole lot mm-hmm. out there, right? I mean, we know, okay, target AF. How do we figure this out? How do we know what AF is or where it is or when? Mm-hmm. Um, 600 pages sounds like a lot, uh, but there must be so much more out there that we probably don't even know what went into that. Oh, hundred percent. You know, 600 pages would be a, that would be a quite a study on it, but, uh, no doubt. I'm sure it's worth it. Anything yeah. that exposes more. I mean, look, we love world war two in general, obviously for me, the Pacific is kind of my heart, but, um, anything that goes deeper, that delves deeper uh, into something like that is always welcome. So love the suggestion. Yeah, I was kind of immediately thinking about uh, John Parshall's uh, Shattered Sword. Oh, if you, yeah. Uh, man, yes. I mean, I just, there's so much, the detail, the, the research that went into that. And one thing I just will always stick with me was the fire suppression systems on the Japanese carriers mm-hmm. and the or the faultiness thereof, I guess right. I should say, um, that really was the demise of of how those carriers just went up in smoke. And to get on that level, it would be interesting if this book does the same thing. And of course, from the guy who literally was there, as the title suggests, from from Admiral Layton himself, to really mm-hmm. get into those weeds yeah. of breaking that code would be would be something. It would. I mean, Midway is such an iconic moment in World War II history, certainly in the Pacific War. We know after that. Hey, but there really we go. And joining us now, returning, I believe, the second time to the show. <clears throat> we had a little uh, latency here. But joining us once again on the show is Mr. Luke Shuttle. Luke, how are you doing tonight, sir? Hey, 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 hey. Doing good, doing good. Thank you so much for having me. You've been uh, staying busy lately, huh? I try, you know, that's, uh, what do they say? The idle hands or the devil's playground. So Not... try to stay busy. So, uh, you know, you've been on the show before, but we have a lot of new listeners. The show's come a long way since then. So let's give everybody the quick, um, for us old folk, the cliff notes version of your life. Nowadays, I guess it would be the Wikipedia, you know, of how you got here and what uh, how, what got you into the hobby and what got you into film production. And uh, then we'll get up to speed on your latest project. Yeah, sure, sure, sure. So, um, yeah, uh, I started, um, you know, growing up doing film at a very young age. Um, 
and really kind of, uh, you know, obviously loving movies, loving stories, um, you know, kind of just, you know, a lot of people are that way. Uh, I knew kind of going into high school that that was something I kind of wanted to pursue, but I, um, I didn't necessarily, not that I didn't, you know, film school wasn't something that I was really interested in doing. So uh, I went to school, I uh, went to college, ended up getting a history degree. I love history, um, you know, always have, it's a, it's a big passion of mine. Um, and kind of, you know, um, one of the things that, uh, you know, I still had the love for filmmaking was doing different, different projects. And they always kind of say when you're ready to do your first like big, you know, film project, whatever it is you want to do, you know, try to always utilize as much production value as you can. And, you know, for me, it was kind of, it was so using my history background and kind of my love of the, you know, kind of World War One, World War Two military, um, I, I decided to do uh, a World War Two type of film and um, it's just kind of gotten grown bigger and, and better ever since. And, you know, I've done, you know, different genres here and there, you know, all sorts of different things, but uh, military stuff is always, all, or is always something that's uh, near and dear to me um, and something I uh, always love to, to tell veteran stories. You know, it's interesting. I'm looking at your um, IMDB and how far back it goes as far as your, um, participation whether it's through production or acting and uh, it looks like you got your early start in 2009 and you're kind of right there on the interesting aspect of you're talking about getting bang for your buck on production you want to talk about bang for your buck you went from probably when people are starting to phase over to some of the newer digital equipment to now things being probably a lot more easier to come by and it's still expensive but I guess a big picture wise compared to filming things, you know, 10, 11 years ago, it's probably gotten a lot more efficient that way um, as far as technology goes and the ability to do a lot of uh, men house production yourself. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, obviously, you know, some things, uh, seem to, you know, even though things change, things always seem to stay the same. I think I was actually just talking to, uh, a director buddy of mine, um, named Andrew today, and we were we were discussing the new iPhone uh, 14 Max, mm-hmm. and we were kind of you know he was doing a bunch of shooting, and I've been doing some shooting with it, not anything, just just testing it out, kind of having fun with it, and we were both uh, commenting how amazing it was, and how like I th- like we were like I think like the specs on the iPhone you know aren't necessarily or uh, for the 14 Max you know are still you know they're you know getting better and better. I was like, I think our first feature that we had ever shot was on a similar type of format. Sure. And and so it's just like, and that was you know back in two thousand seven eight. So it's just it's amazing. And that and that was on like this huge red brick camera. I was gonna say was the price point was a lot was, different too. Yeah, different. And so your latest project. Well, um, how did this idea come to you? The the storyline for your latest project. So yeah, uh, the latest uh, movie that just came out on Friday, last Friday, May nineteenth, uh, uh, called "Come Out Fighting." Um, yeah, it's something um, I kind of always knew I wanted to tell. Um, you know, I- I'm always fascinated by you know obviously military stuff, but I always try to find you know stories that haven't, um, or at least <clears throat> shouldn't say stories that haven't been told, but maybe groups of of men and and that haven't had their story told. Sure. And especially with military. And I knew I always kind of wanted to do a, a tank movie. Um, you know, I love the 761st. They've always been one of my favorite tank units. Um, you know, obviously there's, they're, 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 they're more well-known within uh, maybe military minded people because they're, they're kind of famous for being part of uh, Patton's third army. 
But uh, it's not necessarily something uh, that a general audience or public would know very much about, or uh, I definitely don't believe there's been any films made about them. So it's something that uh, I've always loved. Um, I started developing, um, you know, the story, the script, you know, oh, geez, it's probably been almost four years ago. So it's been a little bit of a journey. And just for uh, those listening, the storyline is set in World War II, and this military adventure thriller, a small and specialized squad of the U.S. Army soldiers are sent to an unofficial secure, I'm sorry, unofficial rescue mission behind enemy lines to locate the missing commanding officer. The squad, upon battling their way through the German defensive, encounter more than they bargained for when they located downed U.S. Army fighter pilot. With the help of their friends and the, at the 761st Tank Battalion helm, the squad must fend their way to survive and make it back in one piece to the American lines. And so um, definitely looking forward to uh, watching that one. I've seen quite a few of your films. Um, oh, thank you. I think one of the ones that I, you, you, was in heavy rotation when it first came out was uh, War Pigs. And you had quite a lineup on that one as well, right? Yeah, yeah. War Pigs was kind of um, one of my first bigger, bigger budget, at least for me, um, feature films, and definitely the first one I really got to have, you know, bigger name talent. Um, we had uh, Mickey Rourke, Dolph Lundgren, and uh, Luke Goss. So it was a lot of, um, you know, kind of my first time, um, you know, getting to work with some of those heavy hitters. Um, and you know, Dolph. I don't know. You know, some people maybe have heard the news. He's been battling. Uh, cancer for the last several years I kind of you know I've gotten to do a couple projects with Dolph so I knew he was you know struggling with with some health issues um, not necessarily knowing all the details but you know Dolph I just wanted to give him a shout out like he you know with with war pigs oh so long ago you know he agreed to do it and he kind of was the first name cast to kind of say yes and he set the whole uh, ball in motion to get other people you know get the financing involved sure. to get other people to say yes so, I mean, what an amazing, you know, outstanding man. Um, he's just done so much for me and my career. So, you know, he and he's just he's just a fantastic guy. And for those that maybe don't know, he is so smart. Like, yes. he's a genius. Yeah, he's... Like, talking to him is like talking to, like, a, a scientist, like, a, a, a not a mad scientist, but, like, a MIT scientist. Like, he's a genius. I think he's certified Mensa. I think, I literally think he is a card-carrying Mensa member. But, and he did... Oh, he he has come back and he is part of this project as well. It looks like he's playing major chase Anderson. So yes, obviously yes. you guys get along well enough that he's willing to come back and work on another project with you. Yeah. We have a lot of fun, fun together. And what's fun about Dolph is, you know, obviously he's a big action star. Um, and in this one, he, you know, obviously we, we utilize him a little bit differently, but he, we love developing characters. And so it's, it's been a lot of fun getting to work with Dolph Lundgren to kind of like really hone in a character that he wants to play and then just kind of adapt him into a film uh, that, that I'm doing. The key, uh, the major players in this, how excited were they that you're doing a movie on an African-American based tanker crew and they're finally kind of getting their, their light shine on them as well. Well, I think the, um, yeah. So like the main cast, you know, um, I want to say like, you know, when, you know, we, we tell them a lot. Like, so the, so some of the name cast in this movie are uh, Kellen Lutz, who's kind of known um, for his uh, playing a vampire in Twilight. Um, he also was Hercules uh, in a feature film. Um, and he obviously he's done lots of other bigger things as well. Um, we also have, uh, you know, Dolph, who we'd mentioned, uh, then uh, Michael, Michael Jai White. Mm -hmm. um, who's, for me, he, he'll always, he is, he is Spawn. So that was an incredible kind of a <laughs> yeah. kid 
growing up watching Spawn. Like that's just so it's cool to get to cut, get to meet him and, and work with him. Uh, my my lead, who is uh, uh, Hiram A. Murray, he's a fantastic actor. Maybe not as big of a known name um, yet as some of the others, but he's definitely an up and comer. Uh, he just got off a stint on um, you know, last summer's Terminal List with Chris Pratt, so he's he's uh, f- fantastic. And then um, lastly, we had uh, Tyrese Gibson, who just who's uh, kind of known for all the Fast and the Furious mm-hmm. and obviously other things. But um, yeah, that was kind of a definitely an amazing bunch of group of guys. And yeah, they. I mean, I think like one of the things you know for a lot of them to when they read the script and story, and I, I mean this, you know, like. I don't know if they necessarily ever believe that they get a chance to be in a military type of film. And like this really struck home to them and really, um, you know, they, they, you know, grasped it and said like, Hey, this is a story. We, we not only do we want to tell, we enjoy this, but like, we need to tell, like we need to do this for these guys. So that was kind of fun to really, you know, I really felt like I got above and beyond uh, their efforts in order to bring it to life. When writing the screenplay and the script for this, how much time did you spend on like the research and development, if you will, you know, the going to the archives and find as much information as you can on these particular, you know, tank battalions and just making sure, because obviously you've been around the living history world. You, you know, historians and how they, you know, they pick everything apart. So how much time and effort do you put into the research aspect of your storylines before you even start working on the scripts? So I think like one of the first things that I like to do, especially with the, you know, you know, I do have, you know, mine are uh, what people would call, you know, lower budget type of films. So there are some limitations that before I even start writing, I know, I mean, I just know I'm going to, you know, butt heads against. It's just the way that it is. Sure. So um, I definitely have that in mind when I start writing. So what I like to do is kind of plot down um, a basic script structure, story structure, and, and maybe do a script, something really rough. Um, and then once I kind of uh, hone that in just a little bit, um, I really like dive into, okay, what can I, you know, keeping in mind the budget, like, okay, so let's go really research. Uh, let's get really knowledgeable on the areas that I know are, you know, everything's important in the script, but like areas where like, okay, I really need to know this um, really, really well. So I kind of really dive into that. And that usually takes me, you know, a whole year to kind of develop, kind of write, develop, research, and then, you know, trying to compound that all with, if I know, you know, I, I'm obviously going to be shooting it in with a tight budget, um, not as many days. So just kind of like coordinating, okay, like what can I get away with? What can I do? What can I already put in the story in the script that I know is going to help me if I go to film this? So that, you know, it's a very, it's a long process. Um, but, I, you know, it always kind of, it always kind of pays off. I think people are always amazed when, you know, like we do these things and like on this film, we shot it in, in 17 days. So, I mean, it's it's an incredible, you know, with like the names, the actors, you know, the weather, um, you know, you, you just really got a lot on your plate and really to be prepared beforehand as well as possible, especially um, steeped in the historical, you know, knowledge of that um, is so important. Jeff, do you remember how many days you guys spent on Walking Point? Because that was a short film as well. I mean, that was a shorter film, but was that a pretty ten. quick 10 days? 10 days, yeah. Now, Henry's been working on a book, and we've had other authors on here. One of the things they talk about when it comes to getting a book published is the publishers want an X amount of pages. They don't want more. They don't want less. They have a general idea how much they can get into a book where people be interested sure. in reading it, obviously cost and all that. When you're writing a screenplay, you've done a, enough movies now. 
do you have like kind of a page cap or word cap? Because as you were just saying, you know, when you're working with a finite budget, the difference between writing a book, your art cost goes into ink pages and and postage, whereas movies it goes into lighting, film, actors, craft services, time on site, everything. So is you kind of like have a rough outline? Okay, I know I want to go for X many hours, so I need to stick to this many pages. Do you have a formula worked out now? Yeah, so I um you know and it's it's fun it's fun um you know the 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 storyteller in me would just love to just write and write and write and write and kind of like produce this big 120 130 page script um and say like all right let's make this but i've and i've tried that before and it's really freaking hard when you're on a, a tight schedule so um yes over the years i have kind of developed some some tricks to help me out I know, so like one of the rules of thumb, so listen up anyone that's, in, you know, wanting to do feature films, um, you know, kind of the cutoff for both domestic and international buyers or people that, you know, distributors, mm -hmm. they want to see a feature uh, like with actual footage of at about 82 to 83 minutes. That's like their cutoff. If you have anything less than that, not, not including the credits, so if anything less than like 82 minutes, they won't, they won't play it. It's too short. So um, what, so knowing that, you can usually kind of equate about one minute of screen time to about one page or so. So my, so my scripts usually come in at about 85 to 90 pages long. And I know that I know that that gets me about, if I film all of it properly, gets me about 85 to 90 minutes of, of footage to, to for a finished movie, and then I can edit it down and tighten things up. I have a little bit of wiggle room in case I need to speed it up, you know, and cut some stuff out. So that kind of usually trims me down to about 82. Now, you definitely could write, you could definitely shoot more than 90 pages, but you'll, that obviously will take you more days, which equals more time and equals more money. So that kind of is just a, a good rule of thumb. I, I've heard by listening to other um, people, Adam Carolla, for example, he's shot a few films, and he says one of the things that took him a while to realize is you want to shoot a lot of over-the-shoulder B-roll. <laughs> he's like, if you shoot a lot of over-the-shoulder B-roll, and then during editing you realize, oh, shit, we didn't catch this line, well, we'll just put in the over-the-shoulder B-roll, have them come in, <laughs> record the line in post, and you just won't see what they're saying to help fill in some of those gaps. Never yeah, underestimate yeah. the power of B-roll, I guess, is, is the key when you're starting getting into uh, making movies. Yeah, I mean, I you know, they call it cover or coverage. Mm -hmm. um, I always recommend, you know, get as much coverage as possible because your, your editor will love you. I mean, they just you just ne you just never know. Like sometimes maybe something's not working or the camera angle's funny and they need to cut away to something. And if you have nothing to cut away to that, they're going to be in a tight spot. What was the location shoot for this movie? So uh, we ended up shooting uh, like 95% of it uh, in a place called Rockford, Illinois. Okay. Um, it was a nice, it, it was really a location that I had studied well. Um, they do a big reenactment there every year. Um, and But it was a good central location for a lot of the, the vehicles that we used. A lot of the um, vehicles that we could get our hands on were within you know an hour, two or three to get, get to the site. So that was, you know, kind of not having to have the truck everything across the country was very uh, beneficial and allowed us to get more stuff. And I assume you probably reach out to local reenactors to have some background folk walking around and because obviously it's yeah. easier to deal with them because they come with their own wardrobe. Yeah, yeah, no, we, we definitely had um, a lot of great reenactors in this. Um, 
you know, I, I definitely have done these uh, films enough where I've acquired a very vast, like, I think I've got like, I always say like 50 or 60 sets of, you know, uniforms, American, you know, mm -hmm. just fully, fully uniforms. So I've learned to like always be prepared to, uh, and then just bring in random extra, not random extras. They're all great, but uh, have extra extras call. So I always know I have uh, a good amount of bodies and we have the, the costumes to put them in. If people, uh, you said come out fighting came out on Friday, where can people find it right now? Yeah, so uh, right now, uh, let's see, I'm you know, it's on, it's playing in theaters um, uh, in several different states. I know, like, it's on demand, so usually that means you can, like, rent it or buy it. Um, I think, like, redbox.com, I think, I think iTunes, I think Amazon. Um, you know, this, this movie is a, uh, uh, Redbox actually picked it up as a Redbox exclusive. Nice. So I know like if you go to redbox.com, you definitely can get all different versions of being able to get your hands on it. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm pretty sure iTunes, Amazon, I'm sure there's others, Voodoo, um, Google stuff. They, they have so many different, different ones now these days. I'm not that I'm losing track, but, um, it's, it's just, it's been amazing to see all these different options. Well, yeah, I was gonna say options is definitely a good thing because I mean, back in the day, not so old, but back in the day, you want to you know put out independent films. It's like your options to get signed on to Miramax or a few other other ones, and good luck. And then with the streaming services, there's so many of them out there looking for good content that yeah. it's probably easier now than opposed to maybe 15, 20 years ago to get material out. Yeah, I mean, it, it's definitely um, to get it out there uh, with the internet and just the different distributors. Um, it's definitely a lot easier than than it has been in the past. Now, it looks like you put out a, a film around 2021 called The Last Sun. Did were you was that film in, uh, impacted by COVID as far as the film festivals go and things like that? Yeah, I mean, we actually, uh, yeah, we shot. We were one of the first movies for The Last Sun to shoot in. I would call COVID um, with dealing with all the pre protocols and uh, the, you know, just the virus itself. What kind of helped it was. So for those that might not know, the last son is a Western uh, starring Sam Worthington. Um, you know, we shot it in Montana. So we, it's kind of where we had shot was on this old uh, West town, uh, this old ranch. And we kind of like secluded ourselves. We lived on the ranch. We shot on the ranch, you know, we shot around on the ranch. So that way we, we could kind of limit our exposure to different things. Um, it was it was a very amazing experience, and Montana is just such a, a gorgeous place mm -hmm. that um, you know it really felt like I mean it most definitely felt like we were on living in Western days, um, just in terms of we had like I think our first day of filming it was like it was fall, so we shot this in October and it was like mid October and it was you know seventy six gorgeous gorgeous day and then like literally within two days like on the weekend snowstorm you know snowstorm comes up on the mountain dumps like a foot of snow on all of us. So, uh, and then, so I was like, okay, well, I guess this movie takes place in the in winter. The winter. So. <laughs> well, you don't have to worry about bringing in fake snow at that point. No, most definitely. There's definitely no fake snow there. Jeff, Henry, you have any questions for Luke? <laughs> Not so I mean, far. I'm, <laughs> I'm foaming at the mouth. Probably a thousand questions as somebody who's uh, working in independent films and from the advising costume design and acting experience. So I got, I got a lot of stuff, but, um, uh, Fire away, I, man, I, I love talking that stuff. Uh, well, I mean, I don't want to get too deep in the, in the, what I've got going on, but, uh, I would like to ask, I mean, in your opinion, 
Um, you know, and we've talked about this a lot on the show and from our listeners. Do you think uh, being on on that side of the camera and the work that you do, which by the way, you definitely get like the award for the background of the guy you can tell is always working. <laughs> yeah. We have people on the show with nice bookcases and everything's great. And this dude, you can tell this dude's busy. Yeah, Amazon packages. <laughs> yeah. But um, I mean, no, it's just, it's a fear. I think that Don and Henry and I share and probably a lot of our listeners is, do you see World War II, uh, a demand for World War II films dropping off uh, only because of, it's been done, then it was redone, and then it's been done for the first time, and then for whatever reason it flopped. You know what? what what's your take on that? Because um, I know film is such an important media, uh, especially for younger generations coming up. That you know, World War II is going to be just as ancient history as Thermopylae, right? It doesn't take long; it just gets lost in the annals of time, and nobody can really tell how long ago it was, right? Yeah. I, I have students. I'm a high school teacher. I have students ask me if I was in Vietnam. I'm like, guys. <laughs> You know, like that's what I'm saying, but like there's that I don't know, it's before I was born, so it could be at any time. <laughs> so you do you see World War Two going there, or do you think there's enough and, and I know there's people like you working hard to keep it alive, our living historians, actors, researchers, authors, podcasters. Do you see it? Do you see it dwindling? So I I think that's a great question. Um and obviously this is my personal opinion, but I do at least get to see a little bit more on the back end. I mean, of like how, you know, there's obviously the artistic success that you want to achieve um, with each film that you're trying to make. Um, and that has, you know, when you're, when you're doing, a, when you're doing working on budgets, I mean, that has, not that it has a limit, but you know, like you are, you know, there's only so much you can do with the time money that, and the resources that you're allowed to have. Um, but so, on the flip side, there's also the distribute distribution side of things. And I've gotten to, I've gotten to see that very well. And I know that really well. And I've ne like, it is the most, um, especially with, 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 um, movies is the most confusing thing for anyone that does movies. They don't understand how world war two movies do so well. And because they do so well and why, um, they do so well at any budget level, because there's a huge demand and market and there's still so much interest in it. And I think like what maybe, um, you know, wh while it might appear, especially some of like the bigger budget stuff, why it maybe seems like, okay, well, these didn't weren't as financially success as they should be. It, it, it is not because that the audience is not there watching them. I think like the, the, the distribution model, that is cur the current structure of films is not yet up to par or, or the ability to be able to compensate those bigger budget features, if that makes sense. So something like, I'll give you an example, like Midway, right? Fantastic think, movie. Uh, and so excuse me, I'm, you know, I'm thinking, I think it had like a budget of, I want to say at least $40 million, but it could have been a lot more. And I don't know. I mean, I, I can't speak in general. I'm, I'm just speaking in general, but I don't think it necessarily made its money back. But that that's not because of the, the lack of audience to go see it. It's because it doesn't have the correct distribution model um, that it can really flourish and make money. So if that kind of like sums up, like the audience is there and the demand to see these movies is there. It's just the um, the distribution model in order to make some of the bigger budget stuff 
is really, really hard to do. And it's like that for a lot of movies, regardless. Like, unless you have, like, this big super blockbuster, you know, movie, you know, Marvel movie, let's just say, with, like, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars, or you have Brad Pitt in your project movie, like Fury would have, mm-hmm. it's really hard to get the audience to spend money. Everyone kind of waits for it to get to, like, I or to get to, like, um, Oh, sorry, Netflix, or they wait for it to stream free with ads. Sure. And like, so you, you get like, you know, huge audience, lots of people will be watching it, but the, the, the money that kind of comes back from those models is not very much. Yeah. To your, so, to your point, Midway grossed 56.8 million in the United States and Canada, 68.5 million in other countries for a worldwide total of 125.4 million. But it had a hundred million dollar budget, so it it grossed twenty five point four million over its budget. Right, and so I'm sh- usually the rule of thumb with those big movies is to say like they also probably spent fifty million dollars in marketing. Mm-hmm. So and there's no, I mean that's, so that's it, it probably broke even in terms of like you know the distribution model, and that's just that's hard like that's hard to it's hard to make money in that even if that much even with that much money putting out there sure the distribution flow is just not as as conducive as it used to be that's kind of funny it... you brought that up. go ahead Jeff. Oh, go ahead now. no go ahead I, I can wait i was gonna say it's it's funny you use that as an example because i had a few conversations on the phone with harlan glenn who was the uh, military advisor for the new sure. midway film and and he kind of said something a lot like what you were talking about i don't remember the specifics but i remember there was that well you have to look at it from a different perspective and i think you really hit the nail on the head there and um, I remember telling him, you know, it it just seemed like everybody kept saying the new Midway film as if it was the remake of the old one from whatever was 76 or whatever that spent, I think, all of their budget on the actors and <laughs> left a lot to to be desired in other aspects. So I, I always kind of thought that that was for some of the older generation that, you know, it's just like when the Lone Ranger came out, you've got a bunch <clears throat> of old guys that grew up in the 40s and 50s watching these old you know western series because that's all that was on tv and they go see johnny depp and they're like no (laughs) and i i I thought that was kind of the same thing with with midway it it was never meant to be oh it's the new midway it's the remade midway it's it's midway 2.0 no 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 if they would have really sat back because i really enjoyed the film i I really did i saw it multiple times i love Midway. it's a great movie yeah, I, I loved the chronology to kind of bring you up to speed. Well, that's uh, what I was going to say, not to cut Jeff off, but to, to his point, and Henry and I have, and Jeff talked about this before, I almost think they gave the wrong damn name. Mid, Midway is like the crescendo of the movie. There's so much yeah. coverage of the Pacific and the things that went on leading right. up to that that they could have easily given a different name and possibly gotten some more eyes on it because I think it was Pacific Payback. I thought Pacific Payback would have been good. Striking Back, I thought would have been some good names because it's, yeah, you get hit at Pearl and then it shows their kind of, you know, the floundering, you know, attack on the Marshals in February, mm-hmm. like just kind of getting our feet wet, pilots really getting their 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 wings, you know, and yeah, but no, that's a really interesting thought. And, and I think that was around that same time where you know it's just not go to the movies on friday night anymore like you said it's netflix it's all the amazon prime stuff and distribution i guess now because we're all anxiously awaiting masters of the air or the mighty eighth or whatever it's going to be with i think a 500 million dollar budget or something is apple is that is that the best way 
mean, I hope so. <laughs> you know, yeah. for that thing to come out. So one well, the good really news too, like Luke said, not only okay, so first it goes to the the main streaming services, your Netflix, you know, whatever, and then as age goes by, it works its way down through the the freebies and the Plutos, where they're still making money off of the av- the commercial ads during that. So there is a avenue. Uh, two things. One, Jeff, I think maybe to answer your question, about three years ago, there was a, a video going around on TikTok, and I've seen picture memes of it, and it s- simply states this. When men hit their late 30s, they get interested in one of two things, smoking meat or World War II. So we always have the thir- we always have the up-and-coming 35 to 40-year-olds that are going to get interested in, in World War II, and so we have that to look forward to. But kind of um, back to the big budget thing, as a small film producer like yourself that's one of the things you got to battle against is all these big mega movie companies they're so worried about loss of revenue because people aren't going to the theaters dvd sales are long gone it's like now they're only remaking pre-existing intellectual properties when's the last time you've seen an original storyline big budget film come out uh, like specifically around like World War Two. Anything. I mean, everything's yeah. all is like, oh, we're gonna do a uh, we're gonna do a Rock'em Sock'em Robots. It has nothing to do with the game, but it's an intellectual property that we know will sell. It's like every big mainstream movie is based off of some sort of intellectual property that's already been out there, and they're just remaking it because they know it'll sell, opposed to coming out with new original scripts. Yeah, I mean, I think it's really, um, if you want my opinion, so sure, I always like. The um, the marketing and a lot like a lot of you know obviously when you make a movie you you gotta be start figuring out like who your audience is mm-hmm. like who are we trying to sell this to and I feel like the industry in the whole but especially like with military mm-hmm. stuff they they've completely forgotten how to market to their own audience yeah like they, you know like I know we were talking about like okay what would what would it take to get maybe midway to be freaking you know have done maybe better in like a theatrical setting well it takes boots on the ground you got to make this thing an event you got to get people into the seats you got to give it you, you got to do you know giveaways you got to get veterans there you got to you know spread this out over every major city and do lot you know like you got to get creative in how you really market and promote these you know military films or yeah. any films probably in general they just in today's they take their marketing budget and they they put it on Google and they hope that a whole you know like as you you know I'm sure anyone said Facebook or Instagram you see ads I mean that's where where they spend their money they they stop it right there they don't do anything else and so it's like okay well, how much more money we have we can put more ads out for people to see now there's nothing necessarily wrong with that they just they're trying they're throwing a net out to the most general anything that they can and they really don't go or engage or they know who they're exact audiences that they're trying to get sure and the other thing you're talking about script length you know you don't want to be too short but the other window you fall into and let's admit it we all have short attention spans you know the days of the the slow burn let's build up the character development let's build up the storyline you know could you imagine trying to release the longest day now even with modern technology it's like if we're not if, if things aren't blowing up and people aren't shooting each other within the first minute and a half of the movie, you know, a lot of people aren't interested. It's like the slow burn, the character development. I don't know. Could you imagine Reservoir Dogs being put out today with that slow burn, that long beginning? You know, I don't know. It's, it seems at least, you know, you go see some of these movies as soon as a credit roll and something's blowing up or something's, something's you know, some, some sort of action's going on. 
that is true. Um, I do think, uh, though, it it is and it will start shifting back to more longer story driven drama because we're losing that. I mean, you can only be, you know, everyone's attention spans are getting shorter and shorter. It does seem like that. And it's just the explosion, explosion, explosion. I think it will swing where people will have, you know, will want to see how this, you know, how a longer story plays out. I, I do anticipate that being something that will come back. That's really interesting, Luke, that you see that because, and I, I'm sure Don and Jeff can, because we have young kids. I mean, I watch my 14-year-old and the things, the way he consumes media. I I have a hard time getting him to sit down and watch a two-hour World War II movie. I, I, don't, it, I don't think I could even do it. I mean, he's watched a lot of the Pacific because that's his grandfather. Sure. But, but that's different, you know. Um, so it's, I mean, it's encouraging, I guess, in a way that you see it swinging back the other way. Cause I'm, I'm curious what could drive that. I hope it does. I hope you're right. Yeah. What, what, what do I think will drive that? Yeah. What, what do you think will be the impetus to make it swing back where people are like, you know, we, wait a minute, we need more intellectual character development. What do we, let's get to the root of this. What are we really talking about? I think you just, I think you just, for me, you just answered the question. It there, we've forgotten the root of, of the story and of the characters. Okay. And, and when you kind of, they, they've taken out that human, that human ability to connect with other humans on, on the screen. They're moving so fast. And even like with, even with like my film, like I, I had to cut out like, geez, my distributor had me cut out about seven, eight minutes of like all of the, all of the dialogue, human emotion. I mean, I, I like to think that there's, I still got to have quite a bit in there, but like anything that they thought was slow, they wanted gone. And they didn't allow any of the character moments to, to I call it um, breathing. I call it breathe. Like sure. When I'm working with my actors, I call it, okay, let's let the scene breathe. Let's let it breathe. And to me, those are the, those are the moments that people actually care about. I mean, screw all the other stuff. But then in the edit, you know, they'll, they'll cut it down. So where it's like, okay, you can kind of tell like, okay, it's there, but it's really fast. Well, I still believe because I've seen it. If you let the, if you let it breathe, if you engage the story, you engage the audience. If they're really on this journey with this character, they will, they'll, they'll get involved. But and I, I totally understand when you say the fourteen-year-olds that it might take a little bit more time for them to really want to see that mm-hmm. nowadays. You know, like it. I do think they'll get there. I mean, my two-year-old, two and a half-year-old is freaking. I'm, I'm amazed that he knows how to work a tablet. Yeah, I mean, it's incredible. It's like they're native to it. The digital yeah, world, they're native. they're native to it. I mean, and so and and because I think it'll be something that as the younger generation, they're so used to everything being so fast. When they actually find that uh, a story or a character that they're just like, oh my goodness, oh well, let's. I, I, I see, like my boys, they, they're they are that way. They're two, four, five, and six, but they like when I would edit. And I would sit on my lap and we'd watch the movie together, like, or just chunks, like scenes and stuff. Mm-hmm. They would sit there and watch and watch and watch. And they were, they were, and, and that's not necessarily equivalent, but I do think it will get to a point where they're like, hey, they just want to see characters. Like, people will want to see characters again. That's really interesting. Well, I was yeah, just, I was just thinking, after, I was, uh, let me say this real quick. I was just thinking after I asked the question, what we're doing is the perfect proof. You know, I worked in radio for six years. We, My radio station I worked at did multiple format changes. It was all rock with afternoon talk show, then it was all talk, and the company would hire all these music consultants to come in and tell you what people want. Well, what do you think a music consultant is going to tell you people want? 
music. They say there's no room for talk radio. There's no room for talk radio. Meanwhile, there's 300 million podcasts out there. People tune into our show every week, and all we do is ramble on for two and a half hours with no action, no no <laughs> screen, no graphics or anything. So maybe what we're doing is an indication at least people in their 30s and 40s want dialogue because that's all podcasts are is dialogue. Even in a video format, you're just watching four dudes sitting in a room talking. So maybe there's a little proof there that the popularity of the talking format that is podcast will bring back people's interest. Or I think the interest is there. We just kind of like the people on radio, the people who run the movie companies are behind the times. They don't realize that there's a thirst for dialogue out there. Yeah. I mean, I definitely think, um, yeah, a thirst for dialogue, but just a thirst to, to see, to see an actor experience a human emotion. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, some of the most amazing things that you can watch an actor do is it, I always say it's like it's right here, you know, right, right here. And you can you can watch them experience their whole life or and a whole emotion by just seeing how their face is reacting. But but that takes time like that will take to see an actor display what like what they're thinking in their face and so that the audience can really feel with what they're feeling. I mean, that, that's going to take five seconds, six, seven, ten seconds of just just sitting with them. And studios and, you know, distributors, they have a hard time. Like, they're moving so fast. They're like, oh, that's way too slow. That's, that needs to be cut out. But, like, really, hu- humans will connect with that. They'll be able to follow it. As if the actor's doing, a, you know, doing their job and, and doing a really good job. Perfect of course, ex- if it's not, it's different. Perfect example is that Philip Seymour Hoffman. What more do you need to say? You watch yeah, that guy he, and like you verbally like watch me like god damn that guy can act. He, yeah, incredible. And it's just, you know, when you do when you go to see it like Midway would have would have maybe uh it was, I mean, I love it for its action-packed stuff. So I love that. Like that was fantastic. Mm-hmm. Um and it had quite a bit of moments um as well. But they probably could have had you know, I probably could have used a little bit more character development out of all those guys. Yeah. But that would have probably dragged the movie on super long. Like, and I'm sure the editor, I'm sure they have it too. I'm sure they shot it. I'm sure they've got these big, long, awesome, acting heavy scenes, and they snip, 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 snip down to like, yeah. like, and that's what was what was shown. So, I I feel like they're gonna get back to allowing those scenes to play out because people will be like, oh, this is fascinating. Let's see what he does here. Jeff, I stepped on you. Go ahead. Well, yeah, I was going to say that you probably, you may or may not remember when you came out to Texas and we, um, you know, doing our, our the Living History program. Uh, I used to get a lot of comments about, you know, oh man, that was that was great, it was great. But there there was one lull, you know, in the shooting after you guys hit the beach, and I'm like, <laughs> yes, I do you that on reloading? purpose. <laughs> like, we hit the beach, and it's you know, it's, it's a Living History event in front of a live audience, Luke. So. You know, there's like yeah. 400 people that are watching everybody hit the beach, and there's the army and the marines, and everything's crazy, and and they're looking right at the Japanese and all these fighting positions and and the hills and everything, and yeah, we hit the beach, and then you, you got to start hearing the audibles, you got to start hearing the cries for corn, and um, you know, the tank would come off from you know the the audience's right and start you know kind of softening up so we could advance. We're not shooting and scooting the whole time. Let's let that die down. Let's let them kind of. Like you said, let's take a breath. And oh my gosh, there's all these guys laying on the on the beach, and there's half of these guys that are still alive pushing, you know, up in you know further, uh, you know, in the advance. And I would always have to answer for that. And 
you know, I just keep telling like, just trust the guy that that's actually been in combat. Like I can tell you firsthand that, or talk to a police officer that's been in a shooting situation. You know, that's not like, it's not like lethal weapon where they have unlimited ammunition in right. in a nine millimeter, you know, like, no, no, no. It, it, it's, you're scared to death. You're not even sure if you should fire, then you, then you fire and somebody's firing. And then you're stuck. What was that? Where, where, okay. You know, like it, it's, it's really hard to if you really want to portray that, portray that accurately. It's really hard to not just have a video game right. <laughs> to really try to tell that story. And like you said, the 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 most powerful scenes are some of those reflective, that quiet, that lull, <clears throat> and then that makes that next shot fired. You startle them because yeah, right. after a while they get numb to it. Everything's blown up. It's like oh, this is boring. Everything's blown up. People are flying everywhere. Right. That's boring. <laughs> so hold back and so then the next time it's just as powerful so you don't wear these folks out so yeah absolutely I, that's it's really interesting like i said man i'm i'm just fun with the mouth i, I could talk to you all night about some of this stuff because i am so passionate about it and 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 being able to, to work in the independent film industry in, in the very minute way that i have but hoping to build on that is um it's interesting because like i said it's you know, if Don's algorithm is correct, the 14-year-olds that we're trying to reach now, I don't want to wait until they're 35 deciding if they're going to smoke meat or talk about World War II. <laughs> you know, I mean, seriously, like that that's thats too late. That's yeah. 20 years from now. And World War II will be like, oh, was that before the Civil War? Yeah, yeah but there's also people turning 30 every every week. So we still... It's, it's just too it's important. Just, exactly. Yeah. So we got to keep it. We got to keep it going. And, and the just point I just appreciate too. what you do, Luke. Appreciate well, what you do. You, I appreciate that. I think probably maybe like the last thing I definitely would love to say with the story is I think, and I've gotten to see this um, over the number of years, just of several films that I do. And it's not necessarily it has to do with like critics, but just maybe older, older viewers, not in a negative way, but I think they forget that sometimes um, it's, and especially what I try to do with my films is, Hey, I'm, I'm trying to tell a story for those 14 year olds. You know, for those younger generations a little bit, you know, they haven't necessarily seen, you know, they don't know World War II like we all know World War II. They don't necessarily know things like we do. And, um, you know, you have to allow a little bit of, uh, hey, there's a little bit of, um, especially with like with with the World War II movies, you you got to educate your younger audience just a little bit in some of the things. You have to allow them to get up to speed and also see things that are very cool because like um, I had someone, not not to go over, over reviewers, but there there was one reviewer that said like I had a tendency to um, write to platitudes, and uh, and for those like a platitude is something like it is what it is, or uh, you know uh, you know we keep moving on, and I, it's that's a snappy so funny. saying. Yeah, 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 and I it totally yes, that totally makes sense. And so like when you're when you're writing like a really adult movie, you know, like really deep dialogue like you know like for adults to really kind of like oh yeah i'm loving this like you want to really make things fresh and do things differently but when you're also trying to kind of include a younger audience i mean they they need to hear stuff like that you know hey don't give up keep moving on pick yourself back up like these are things they need to hear so they go oh that's what that means like they've never heard it before so um so just something i wanted to at least bring you know like you know, it is important to, you know, help and educate some of that younger audience, such as your, your son, you know, because he, he might not have heard some of these things, you know, and that might help him click yeah. his life about, you know, hey, being responsible. You know, it's going to be life is hard. I mean, there's a reason why that I, I heard 
I heard uh, Midway criticized for some of the same stuff. You know, yeah, like, yeah, let's go yeah, out there and, and give them hell. Well, I mean, the truth be told, like you just said, I mean, back in the 1940s, guys kind of talked that way. And, and we should embrace that. There's nothing yeah. wrong with it. I There's mean, nothing wrong with that. And, and yeah, and <clears> that's <throat> how they like to talk. And it's straight and simple and to the point. And it rallies, you know, it rallies the men. And I mean, you don't have to give this big, deep dialogue discussion per se in a situation like that. Like it's simple to the point and everyone understands what you're trying to say. So yeah, Midway got that too a lot. And I just find that it's just such a, it's not a fair criticism because you're, you're not writing the next, you know, uh, um, you know, AMC, AMC TV drama series, which those are awesome, by the way, all those things are great. Fantastic. But you have a younger audience. They won't want to hear stuff like that. Like give them hell. Like, it's a motivation. Hell yeah, let's give them hell. Yeah, you're right. Let's give them hell. It's a pep talk, motivational speech, talk. not a yeah. dissertation of World War II. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh. Well, hey, I just got a I just got a text from from one of our listeners who um, he uh, he's he's well known within the circle <clears throat> and uh, Luke. He's really interested in what he's saying because he's also an independent uh filmmaker and would love to uh, hook up with you um and we could chat after afterward but the uh, the director of walking point just uh, has been chiming in walking points uh, an independent film that kind of brought don and i together as a film project i got um kind of roped into gosh about four years ago now four and a half years ago and and was just uh thrilled to be a part of our listeners have probably uh you know heard the story before but um Really, it's just an incredible story. I I, I hope that you can uh, check it out. Walking Point free on on YouTube now, but it's really the story of uh, the war dogs in the Pacific during World War II. And oh, nice. Yeah, you know, one of those kind of niche, you know, that uh, not overly talked about. And when I was brought on to kind of first, really, just be the military advisor and and help with with um, costume design, and then was offered a, a bit part to to act was really really a lot of fun and it's really led, you know, the dominoes just really started. I owe a lot to, uh, to RJ Nevins, the director of that film. So, um, yeah, I would love to get the two of you guys to, uh, just to be able to chat. Um, you know, like I said, he'd, he'd love yeah, to, no, love he'd it. love to talk with you. would love to have your feedback and, uh, and going forward because this, you, you give me some light. So I'll tell you that I am involved in another, uh, world war two independent film project that we're getting pretty close to production date. And again, I'm advising and acting, about the uh, Pathfinders in World War II. It's kind of a working title, Eureka Beacons, sure. about those guys that deployed those Eurekas for those C-47s yeah. to kind of hone in on. Yeah, so you're familiar, and, and that's kind of like, that's not just the 101st Airborne, right? This is not just the Band of Wagon Brothers. This is, you know, a little bit more of a specific thing. And I'll be honest, like at first I was like, mm, do people care? <laughs> Are people <clears> going <throat> to care about this? Are we going to put a lot of work into this? Um, but just talking with the director last week, I think, you know, we were, like I said, we're getting close and, uh, we got a lot of work to do, but hopefully we can produce something that again, somebody will kind of fall in love with and they say, okay, we want more, you know, that just, we're just going to shoot a, a short right now, but you've definitely given me hope. Um, you give me hope for, for walking point moving forward. You give me hope for, for the uh, Eureka beacon project, because I mean, I'll be honest, like seeing some of these, some of these really well done films, maybe not necessarily flop from a, from a financial standpoint, but just, it's just a different audience now. I mean, they don't, like you said, they don't know World War II like we do, right? We, we, we met a lot of these guys. We talked to them. They're not 
186 years old like they seem to to the younger generation like these are real breathing guys that did some unbelievable thing i mean they really truly did have a rendezvous with destiny and um yeah you know like i said when you when you commit to to a project and you you above all know how hard it is and the work and the work that goes into it you definitely got to know your audience let me give you some encouragement um and so definitely for all filmmakers but you know definitely like the the audience is there the the there is there is money to be made not i don't not like a lot of money but like it is not a if you embark on a world war ii project to make a movie it is not going to be all right now we're out all of our money and we'll never see anything (laughs) it is a genre that can be you know break even profitable it can it can be that so it is a great you know if you if you're if people are trying to figure out like hey do i really want to do this it it yes do it i mean it's a it's not a um something you're just throwing your money away there's an audience there i'll also say this like i believe that whoever whatever filmmaker is able to i don't want to say figure out but the first one to, to be able to pull off a 10 million dollar feature will will make oodles of cash uh, and we'll have a lot of big success because they'll they'll make as much money as Midway, and but they'll have only had spent ten million dollars. And hmm. that's what I you know like I want to encourage any of the the you know your films your projects that you're working on even though they're lower budgets and they're they're building up like that's what you're trying to figure out. You're trying to figure out how to really hone in and make better your craft and being able to tell a World War II type of story with limited resources and then one day when someone gives you the resources to do it you're going to knock it out of the park so that's what i definitely encourage everyone you know especially that likes doing military stuff or world war ii type of films like don't be discouraged by anyone saying anything different that is what the film business it's what the industry is not seeing it's what they don't get they don't understand but you know you can't do necessarily yet do a 90 million budget film and make and be profitable. It's got to be a $10 million, you know, or so type of film. And it's going to come from someone that knows how to really maximize their resources in, on camera and be able to tell a great story. And it's going to be a world war two movie. I know it. Wow. I know it in my heart. Wow. <laughs> do you think there would be a beneficial, or beneficiary, I don't know the word I'm looking for, but you know, my brother and I were joking on my other podcast about uh, this new TV show about smoke jumpers and forestry firefighters. And I told him, I said, Fire Country. I said, Yeah, Fire Country. I said, I can't bring myself to watch it because one of my big pet peeves is bad CGI fire, and that's an entire show of CGI fire. <clears throat> and so, what I was, I was going to say is, when it comes to produ- producing a film, you know, World War II movie would be a good one especially if it's just infantry and a handful of tanks and maybe some jeeps, would it be beneficial to spend a little extra money in the live pyrotechnics versus the CGI? Because, you know, we see a lot of these lower production films that, you know, they use the CGI for the explosions and all that, and it's just, it's noticeable. And and it's not even just TV shows or even movies. I mean, we often joke around, like, on the last season of uh, – Sons of Anarchy, they they resulted to using CGI blood instead of squid packs, and you could tell. I mean, it's just those things are noticeable, and I didn't know if, if as a filmmaker, you think maybe there is a benefit to spending a little extra money on the physical 
special effects opposed to the graphical special effects? That I mean, that's a great question. Um, I so let me answer the simple way. Yes, if you can do things practically, that's always better. But when you're on a like, but I would say to actually pull off real practical ex practical effect <clears throat> explosions, you need to have ten million dollars plus. Sure. Because anything else that you're gonna get, like even in mine, like I mean, I thought I spent quite a bit of money on practical. I mean, we had practical throughout the whole thing. I still found myself having to enhance all of it with VFX. And kind of at the end of the day, it was kind of like, well, it almost had it. Not that it, not that everything looked more VFX, but it's like, well, if I still kind of look VFX and we use practical, like it's a big, a bigger budget would have solved that problem easily. But that's what, so my point is, is okay. If you know, like you're limited in what you're going to do, um, you know, I would go with, I would lean more towards the VFX because a, it, it helps go things go quicker and, and um, it's safer too. I mean, yeah. it's safer. It's safer. Do you find that um, the actors give a better response to the physical effects opposed to, Hey, make believe something just blew up to you over your right hand shoulder opposed to I holy shit. That, something just blew up over my right hand shoulder. I, I, to be honest with you, like, I think the actors do better with when you tell them like to act okay. and to like things that are going around because they, they love, I mean, they like doing that and then they can play with it and give you different things. But when you have, when you have something practical, like, they need to know, like, where is that going to, where is that, where is that going to go off? What's that going to look like? Because it's like, are they near it? Like how far, you know, like sure. they're, in, they're in danger almost, you know what I mean? And, which rightfully so they are. So it, 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 they have a little bit more of a sense of, of nervousness. Now saying that if you actually can have the time, you know, it doesn't just have to be a budget per se, but if you have the time to be able to do that and the actor goes, okay. Okay, this is gonna do this, 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 and this, and then they can they can run the gauntlet of whatever that practical is, and they can react. They know when they're supposed to react instead of kind of being surprised. It that is the ideal. That's yeah. the ideal situation. Yeah, I guess it makes sense too, because you know if you're trying to deliver a line at a certain time and you're physically fighting off a pressure blast from a tank cannon, or, you know, blank going off in a t tank, you know, round or whatever. It may be a little hard to deliver that line the way you want to when you're physically reacting to, you know, compression coming off the right hand side of the stage. So, yeah, so it's just kind of a. But I totally get what you mean. Having practical is always better. So you know, even if it's just like, if you're doing something, if you can have something be practical, try to at least do it. Yeah. If it's if if you, if you can pull it off and do it, and you know, I always say pick your battles. You know what I mean? Like some, some, sometimes you win some, sometimes you lose some. But just don't get, don't be in the middle where it's like, oh, I don't know, what are we gonna do? No, don't do that. Decide what you're gonna do and go with it. It'll make your life a lot easier. I've heard people say this in a, in a lot of other industries, and I would imagine working on films at the level you do, the, you know, the smaller productions that. Finding people that are good at doing their thing, trusting them to do what they're doing so you can focus on other things is probably a key role to getting your projects done. And I would imagine after as many uh, projects you've done, you probably have a, a core group of people that you keep going back to, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, I've got a great crew um, that have – a lot of them have been with me the whole way. They're great groups of, groups of guys. I mean, they – and they, they really understand, like, what I'm trying to do. You know, they – they get it and they're they're on board with like okay this is where we're trying to go and you know however we they can help me to get there um 
you know, they're all on board. And plus they, you know, I always like to say like they're, they're, well, they're, they're family to me, a lot of them. And so we're there, we're just there to kind of have fun. Like, you know, regardless of matter what happens, like if you're not enjoying what you're doing and making this stuff with, I don't want to say necessarily you have to do it with your friends, but if you're not having fun with the guys or the men or women that are there making it with you, like, what's the point? I mean, it, it'll, you'll be able to tell on on the camera if no one's having any fun. Oh, absolutely. It, the chemistry's it, not it, there. It looks terrible. Yeah. And there's no way for people who's never experienced it to understand it. And I only experienced it. You know, I did a little background work here and there, but um, on that level, I only experienced it for a day and a half. And that was working on just being on the set for walking point and then seeing the rap party and being around the actors and the crew during the rap party and seeing how that, you know, I was only there for two days, but as Jeff said, it was a 10, 12 day shoot, but seeing how we just, put the party in rap party and just to see how those 12 days affected the cast, the crew and how it, created a family like you just said and this is you know obviously the crews worked on other things but the the principal actors this is their first time working with this group and they all acted like a family um one of the actors reached out to me and said hey i just want to let you know thanks for doing that podcast i'm probably responsible for 20 of the listens he said i just i keep going back and listening to it because i had the i had the luxury of interviewing them during the rap party so i'd be okay hey. now we're bringing on x y and z and so while the rap party's going on in the background i'm doing a podcast from from the middle of their the house they rented and just awesome. to see people interact that way it's just it still touches me all these years later go ahead jeff no um still laughing <laughs> <laughs> just yeah all those old memories are coming back <laughs> but it's amazing how that impacts people's lives just being yeah. part of something for 12 days well, i mean like you said so 12 12 days on set i i, I worked with 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 uh, rj and his wonderful wife for maybe less than six months right that was four years ago i went from my third kiddo was born to the week later i'm on set <laughs> Uh, for seven days straight with them, and so again, that's four years ago, and I'm and I'm going down to the coast with them, you know, for this for Memorial Day weekend. Four four years later, after working with them, uh, and we haven't done anything since. So it's not like that we're always doing something, right? I mean, so that tells you the bond that was made. Um, you know, we love them like family. Um, so and I and I think that was a strong point for Walking Point. Uh, this, the chemistry and, and like Luke said, I, we really got a lot of bang for our buck on that film and we really stretched every resource and got the most out of it. And the beauty of that particular film to me is not so much, it, it was almost after the film. I mean, once it came out, it was great, right? We won a lot of cool awards and all that stuff and the notoriety and all the new projects that, that, you know, got launched, but um, just, that, that we can constantly go back to it. The things that have happened since I wouldn't be on this podcast right now, if it wasn't for what's the scout or for a uh, walking point, I wouldn't be on what's the scuttlebutt. So um, it's always exciting. And, and Luke, I think you, you hit it again, of course, spot on, like, you know, without that, what are we doing this for? <laughs> like you think we're sitting here doing a podcast because it pays us money. Hilarious! I wish. <laughs> I just want to break even at this point. So while you're out there, head over to Patreon.com. <laughs> yeah, good, good opportunity there, Don. You like that? You like that? <laughs> but yeah. So back to the question. You know, I can imagine you probably have a fine group of people that you've you've done all these projects with that you couldn't probably imagine working with anybody else. Yeah, I mean, I um, yes, I've got some amazing men and women that have been a part of what what I've done. 
Um, and I couldn't have done it without them. Um, and I, you know, I, I love them more than anything. And, you know, part, part of the reason why, if, you know, I enjoy working with them so much and I keep, I keep going forward because I know if I'm able to get something going, I get to bring them back and we get to, we get to go back at it again. And that's, to me, that's, um, you know, people can, people will be able to see like what, what, what we create. And obviously, you know, we're, we're, you know, we doing the best job we can, but like, to me, that's, that's half the bat. That's, that's half the reason why I do this is so I can get something going again so I can bring back the team and we can work on it. And, and, and we all know it's, it's not going to be, yeah, it's not going to pay us enough. We're going to be putting in a lot of long hours. It's going to be stressful high and like, we know all these things, but yet all, you know, we wouldn't change that for the world and we'll be back at it doing it again. And I, I love that. So I, you know, what do they say? That's like chasing the dragon. Is that what they, sure. And I'm sure there's lots of sayings for that, but um, yeah, no, I, I wouldn't ch change that for the world. And, and um, yeah, I mean, those are, you know, I always compare making a movie is like going is like going to war, you know, and while it's definitely, you know, obviously going being in combat and being in war or serving or it's that's way more important than anything making a movie can be. But a movie has a lot of you know, movie production has a lot of the similar type of things. Sit around and wait, a lot of logistics, hot, sweaty, early hours, no one, you know, and just a lot of things that we're all in the same boat putting up with that. And uh, it just it really just brings people together and, and to bond in a certain way, much like a lot of our military does. So um, but obviously not not, you know, those guys that are have way more kudos and way more um, uh, responsibilities and, uh, you know, way more than making a movie. But same type of mentality. And the name of that movie is Come Out Fighting it is available now. Luke, where can people find you on the social media world? Oh, find me? Yeah, if they want to track you down, find your projects. Oh, I think like the easiest way to get a hold of me or to to see what I'm up to is Instagram. I, you know, I I love social media, but I hate social media. Sure. I got four kids now, so I'm just they take up so much of my time and I uh, you know, I love obviously posting things, but man, I'm getting those four kids. They uh they take up a lot of time. So, mm -hmm. yeah, Instagram, I'm usually posting something on there, what have you or whatnot. Um, but yeah, no, I'm, uh, thank you so much for having me. Thank you for, uh, talking. I, I love talking. I mean, it's fun to actually get to talk. Usually when I do, uh, interviews, you know, obviously it's for the filmmaking and for the movie, which is fantastic. I love, it's fun to do something that's a little bit more world war two themed in that discussion, because that's obviously, you know, uh, a genre that I love and it's fun to kind of really get into the, the nitty gritty details of, uh, that with kind of a historical background in in speaking about it. Well, you can call your own your own out when you want to, but we got about twenty minutes left. We're going to roll into another another thing. You're oh, more yeah. welcome to oh, stick good. around with. We opened I'm, the show uh, with a mail call where one of our listeners said that we cost them an inordinate amount of money with all the books we recommend, which is going to bring us right into the segment we like to call "What You're Reading." So I'm going to start with you, Jeff. Uh, hey, Jeff, what you reading? <laughs> well, uh, Luke actually mentioned the First World War at the beginning of this episode, and, and I've kind of been hung up on that a little bit, and I always try to, you know, you guys, you know, I'm always um, preaching this. 
to really fully understand the Second World War, I think we have to have a, a little bit of a, a decent knowledge mm-hmm. of that First World War. So I, I had finished the book that I was reading last episode. So now I am on uh, They Fought for the Sky by Quentin Reynolds. This is the breathtaking story of the first men to fight in the air, the magnificent combat pilots of World War One, And um, just a few pages or a few chapters in, and I got to say this is – Really well done. Quentin Reynolds, the author, was a world-famous war correspondent. So this guy really knows his stuff, really gives him great backstory, um, even predating the First World War and just what um, how the airplanes were seen at the beginning of the war, not at all as weapons of war, um, but just these treacherous box kites that people were like, this is silly. What are we doing? This could, you know, and then oh, but they could be used for observation. And then, oh, all of a sudden, some French guy puts a machine gun on board and the world has changed forever. So uh, I'm, I'm in that. And part of my research project and my next summer project, uh, Luke, I'm also a big scale model uh, hobbyist. So yeah, I'm a big model airplane guy. So the uh, the Fokker DR1 is going to be my, my next, uh, I don't know which one I want to do yet. So I'm into this reference book. And then the uh, Von Richthofen and the Flying Circus is a book from 1958 that was part of my grandfather's very extensive book collection I'm lucky to have. So this is a really great deal. Um, so I'm kind of in three books at once, but all basically on the same topic, basically the air war uh, and World War One. You know, I don't think people give enough thought to that. You know, I was talking last week, Henry and I were about the 17th Airborne and the book I'm still reading, Four Hours of Fury. But in Four Hours of Fury, they go back to talking about the creation of the airborne and how there wasn't an airborne, there wasn't uniform standards and good and all the little nitty gritties of the boots and all that. But back to your book, you're in world war one. Someone says, Hey, we've got this new invention called the airplane. Let's utilize this stuff. But once again, there's no precursor. There's no, you know, they had to basically come up their own policies, regulations and, that in and of itself to be at wartime and say, okay, we got this thing. How can we utilize it in the most rudimentary form that it is? Because, you know, 20, 30 short years later, we're in World War II, and the technology is far more superior than it was in World War I. But to have those rudimentary planes, canvas and sticks, um, trying to figure out the timing to keep the machine gun from blowing the prop out the front of the damn thing, it's just it's crazy to think about. Yeah, it's it's really interesting. I mean, even on the back cover of this book, it says basically, um, you know, their, their planes were tinder boxes. They fought without parachutes or safety belts. They accorded full honors of war to fallen enemies in an ancient and honorable tradition. But for all the romance, chivalry, and hectic gaiety of their brief glory, they fought without mercy. It's their story, which lies behind Hiroshima, the London Blitz, and the Age of Missiles. They opened the doors to space, and it's absolutely true. Um, so yeah, when, when any, anytime that there's such, you know, a big change like that, especially in military doctrine, there's going to be a lot of naysayers. There's going to be a lot of the what ifs. And then to try it, you know, you have to try to full combat speed. There's going to be trial and error. There's going to be casualties. And, you know, it's especially for the American public and how the America wages war, you, you get to a point where when there's too many casualties, it's just like, nope, we can't, we're not going to support that anymore kind of thing. So, um, yeah, to see just th- those guys had no idea of what they were doing at the time or how pivotal it was going to be, how impactful it was going to be on the 20th century. And I, I just I-, I think about 
being up there behind an 80 horsepower motor that like my weed eater probably is stronger <laughs> than now and you're 10 to 12,000 feet above planet earth and you the canvas is stretching like this you know <laughs> the wind is whistling through all this this forest of piano line wires and you're just propelling yourself through space and then throw a Lewis machine gun on the front of this thing and try to take another man's life. Uh, it just, it interests me. It's, it's kind of like, you know, my love for the B-17 and the air war in Europe to like another little bit of a level of, I can't believe humans did this every day. This was their life. You know, it's funny. You're talking about your lawnmower, you know, those of you who live in hilly areas like a Kentucky or Tennessee or the hill countries of Texas, you're you got that push mower on the wrong angle and just just enough the carburetor cuts out and the, and the fuel's not getting there. Could you imagine those old rudimentary airplanes and the rudimentary level of the carburetor and how easily those things could have stalled out if you angled it just the wrong direction and then hoping it restarts back up? I mean, we're not talking full vacuum fuel, you know, fuel pumps and and you know fuel injection it's it's gravity fed carburetors and fuel tanks yeah and, and it's fuel strapped to some spark canvas. compression yep that's <laughs> it God. and one yeah. brave guy to go flip the flip the prop around i'll do it <laughs> what was the phrase they used to say oh, um oh it used to be all it was we're talking about cliche sayings or platitudes or something that uh, they would used to say before they kick over clear the clear prop, yeah, clear or whatever it was. And contact, flop, flop, contact. That's what it was. Contact. Flop, 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 yeah. flop, 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 flop. Hey, Henry, what you reading? I am still in uh, volume three of Ian Toll's trilogy, Twilight of the Gods. Really enjoying that. It's very immersive, but as you know, my time for reading is a little bit restricted these days. So sure. it's, it's taken longer than I wish it would. Well, I'm still on four hours of, of fury because of the, all the insanity, all the fury that's been going on around here. And so I yeah. actually didn't even crack this book at all last week, but I'm hoping to get caught up. Hey, Luke, I know you've been busy probably writing more than you're reading, but uh, what you've been reading lately? Well, um, you know, actually, it's funny that you guys were talking about this. I'll, I'll pop it up right here. So I've been kind of doing, well, it's kind of reading, but it's kind of a little more research. It's called The Marines in World War II from Pearl Harbor to Tokyo Bay, and it just kind of goes over there, like, I, I'm using it more as like a pictorial guide, so I'm doing a little research on Marines for a project, and so I've been reading that book to kind of get a sense of what they would wear and what they would look like and well, how they would I know dress. three guys so that are pretty... reading. I know three three guys who are pretty in tune with the, the uniform standards of uh, the Marine Corps in World War II. So if you you need any uh, suggestions, I, I know three guys who uh, can help you out. The Marine Raiders, okay? Mm -hmm. The Marine Raiders, some of their first missions, it is a bear to try to figure out exactly what they, I mean, what they might have worn. Mm -hmm. Not that you can't do it. It's just they did a lot of modifications yep. and not necessarily. And it's kind of like in between where they're wearing the frog skins and like the HBTs, so it just kind of depends. Where yeah, are you gonna get? Awesome. Where are you gonna find a pair of green PF flyers? <laughs> the the yeah, yeah, big yeah. difference for first or second Raider battalion too. Yeah, yeah, they, yeah. There's a difference between the first and second Raider battalion. Yeah, there's a difference. So uh, that's what I'm trying to navigate a little bit around, trying to really like get a sense of of what those guys would have would have been wearing. And it, yeah, it just have, you know, that's what I like to do when I start writing a script is then like, okay, well, what would these, 
if these guys are wearing something crazy ridiculous that I'll better get <clears throat> my hands on, I might just, you know, well, let's scrap that. Not the first Raiders. Let's do something more about the second Raiders. That'd be easier to do. You mean so you don't want to have a wardrobe department dyeing a bunch of HBTs black? I mean, it's totally doable. <laughs> but you say you mentioned that, and I was like, okay, this is great. They dyed them black. I was doing some reading and be like, wait a minute. That might have been like their dress. Like not a, it's not a combat thing. It might have been more of like they're like walking around. They did it for fun. So, I don't know. There's just it's always the research, right? Yeah. Because you, know, you think you're gonna do it a certain way, and and all of a sudden you're like, wait a minute, they, they didn't wear them like that. So that's always fun. Yeah, the army had a group called the Merrill Marauders, and basically they were told they had to carry certain things in their pack and whatever weapon system they wanted. But when it came to their uniforms, they could pick and choose whether it was Marine Corps issued stuff, Army issued stuff, and so. The Merrill Marauders, their uniforms were literally all over the place. They could take whatever they found comfortable because they would drop in behind the lines in Burma and just spend months on time in the jungle. And so yeah. their, their, their command, once again, we don't exist. We're going to make our own rules. Let's find the gear, regardless of who it's issued to, that works best in this environment. And so when you're trying to study that and build an impression off of that, it's all, it's all <clears> down <throat> the road. It's, it's pretty crazy. And my video cut out, but I'm still here. For some reason, my camera keeps cutting out. Can you guys still hear me? Oh, we yeah. hear you. Yeah. yeah, we hear you good. So um, that's pretty much going to wrap it up for this episode of the What's a Scuttlebutt. So luckily my camera dropped out at the end. As we said earlier, if you want to support the show, please head over to patreon.com or wtspworldwar2.com. Click on that Patreon link, sign up, subscribe. It's only a dollar a month. And while you're at it, head over to youtube.com, look for Digital 410 Media, and uh, subscribe to our YouTube channel. You can watch all of our live streams live every Monday. And um, for myself, Jeff, Henry, and Luke, we want to thank everybody for hanging out, and we will talk to you all next week. This has been a Digital 410 production. <laughs>